story makers. What do animal tracking and writing have in common? More than you think, as we learn in conversation with Sylvia Lindstedt, a prolific young author of fiction and nonfiction, and a certified animal tracker. We dig into crowdsourcing your publication, the natural world and natural rhythms of writing, and some insights on unexpected long-distance collaboration. If you have a question about writing, producing, the artistic life, or getting out of bed in the morning, let us know. We're going to be adding a mini podcast in the near future called I Have a Question. Send your questions to questions at storymakershow.com. And with that, enjoy, enjoy the, the show. show. <laughs> what does it mean to be a certified animal tracker? I mean, where does one get that certification? Yeah, good question. Um, it means I... Um, I trained for a while with some wonderful people teaching me how to like uh, interpret animal sign on the land, mostly out in Point Reyes. So like like coyote tracks, bobcat tracks, scat, you know, all mm -hmm. the things. And then um, every so often they bring out like a, a certified person who's like officially, there's a whole system basically. Okay. Of, Certification, so so it actually is useful for like people trying to manage land. Mm -hmm. If there are people who have, there's a system that certifies and kind of legitimizes people. Okay. So that say like, yes, you do know what coyote tracks look like. Like we have a system in place to be sure that you know. We tested you. We put you in the middle of Point Reyes, spun you around with a blindfold on, and then said, "What six animals just crapped here?" Right. And then you did it. Kind of. That's it. Yeah. No, it's okay. like a day long thing where you have to like answer all these questions go to different stations, yeah. different animal sign. Really amazing, fun. Yeah, well, it seems that, that you're really integrating that with your writing stuff. I mean, not necessarily animal tracking per se, but, you know, even in the little part that we read on the Unbound site that was the sample of Tattered Demalion, um, I there's a lot of, um, it's interesting, the pieces that you pull in, the the threat yeah. of, of naturalist and... Um, you know, what, uh, gosh, what is his name again? The guy who talks to the newts. The guy who talks to the newts. Oh, oh, Poppy. Yeah, yeah. Poppy, yes. <laughs> what, what was his name? Well, it's like, wait a minute, the newts. <laughs> or you just, that, that's interesting, tracking as a way of communicating kind of with your environment. And stuff. Yeah, and, and I think also, I mean, one of the things that struck me immediately when I started animal tracking, I guess it was four years ago, is that, in a way, I, I think that it was one of our earliest forms of storytelling mm. and language. Like it's, you're really reading a language and a pattern on the land and then you're bringing it back and saying, you know, this is the, this is the pattern that I saw. This is how I'm reading that language. And then, um, you know, I think people like in our hunting and gathering past and indigenous people still like part of the tracking process is bringing the story back and saying, you know, this is what happened. This is what the coyote was doing. And so I was really struck by that immediately. And I feel like it triggers something in your brain, some story place. For me, I was like, oh, my God, this is one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Like, this feels like it's triggering the deepest place of story. So. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Because also, I mean, part of story is finding clues and, and following them to see what is there. Right. Yeah. Like the process of writing a story sometimes feels like tracking like you don't quite know where you're going but you're you're following the signs that you know how to find yeah you know, uh -huh. based on your instinct I mean it feels like intuition in that case you're just following whatever that is and suddenly 
it comes together, mm-hmm. you know? I, you know, I've been thinking about that and I, I'll put this question to you. I've, I've been putting it to myself as well, which is, um, so there's something incredibly pleasurable for me in discovering things about my story, revelations that come to me as it's unfolding. And I'm wondering how much I replicate those same revelations for the reader or, or are different ones, you know, and, and I'm wondering, especially in light, in light of the sort of tracking metaphor, um, or parallel, mm-hmm. how, um, as, well, actually, maybe you could first explain to our listeners this process of discovering this story through, through the art. And then mm-hmm. we'll talk about what the revelations from there. Okay. Yeah. So, so Tattered Amalian, um, started with the paintings. So mm-hmm. this wonderful English painter named Rima Staines, um, paints these very folkloric kind of, um, rudy, beautiful, uh, medieval feeling to paintings. And, um, I'd loved her work for a while before I started this book. And I was kind of just sitting at my desk one day between projects, feeling like I wasn't sure where I wanted to go next. And I was surprised it hadn't occurred to me before, but I just decided to choose one of her paintings to write from. Cause I'd love to do that like for years, you know, like mm-hmm. to pick, I go to a museum even and sit down at a painting, you know, or with a postcard. It's just one of my favorite things. But I sat down with one of her paintings, um, the one called Lyubov, um, which is, there's this amazing wheeled creature. And I just started writing and I was really surprised. Like, it was an unusual sensation what happened. It wasn't just, it was like beyond the usual feeling of inspiration. I feel like a doorway opened. Um, and, and I was taken into a place that already existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just told the story. I felt like I was being told the story by this character who I saw in the painting mm-hmm. and I sent it to Rima and she loved it. Did and you, did you know her already? We knew each other online. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, we'd been emailing back and forth for a while, but so we had some, yeah, some friendship connected and established, but, um, Nothing like this had happened before. But then I sent that to her and she really loved it and she encouraged me to keep going. And so I kept going. And um, after maybe three or four of them, it became clear that the characters were threading through the painting. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. Now, I'm, you know, I'm using this new painting, but actually I'm realizing that the character that I wrote about before from this other painting is in this one too. And they're talking to each other. And I really felt like... I was just there, like mm. it was in the right place at the right time for these characters to come through. I haven't quite had a writing experience like that before or since to that degree of feeling like there was some other, something else at work mm. and I just was letting it come through and kind of getting out of the way. And that was about all I had to do. Mm. It came out really fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I have a couple of questions, but let's go to the revelations thing first. So as you were discovering, wait, these characters are connected or these are in the same, you know, story. Um, and those, those revelations that I was talking about, you know, kind of coming to you, that's so, I find so exciting when I'm uncovering yeah. a story. How many of those are become surprises to the reader mm. in the book? You know, I think a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of them, and I can't. I, I don't know if I can um, articulate specifically which ones, but I feel like there's a way in which the book um, 
the book kind of leads you the way that it led me. Mm-hmm. I feel like that there may be a very similar process in reading it. And I think I have heard that from people that you get to a certain point in the book and then you start to realize, oh my God, this character and this character and it, that's this one, you know, and, mm-hmm. and oh my goodness, that's what's going to happen later to this one. And they all actually come together in the end. And there, I think there are moments in the book because it's told in fragments. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a linear novel. Um, there are moments of maybe um, slight mystery mm-hmm. for the reader. Like, wait a minute, you know, what's this now, this new thing, you know, how is this all going to fit together? But it really does all come together in a way that feels satisfying to me. And I think, you know, has to other people and I hope to everybody, it feels mm. like it works. Did some of that, did you have to go back and fix some of that at the end once you figured out how it fit together? You know, I did, I, I didn't have to fix any of it. Like it all did fall into place. Um, the one thing that I changed in the final draft was a framing of the whole novel that I mm. think helps the reader trust that it's all going to come together. Mm-hmm. So it all, it all already did. And I, all I really had to do was move Poppy, the character you were talking about, who talks to newts from the end to the beginning so that he becomes the frame through which all the stories are sort of ending rather than you find him at the end with all the stories ending in him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because that maybe was kind of a stretch of faith a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds yeah. a little bit like there's sort of like divine storytelling and human reading and you have to <laughs> accommodate. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, it's as important to balance these things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You know what? Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. One thing I loved was you said, um, I was sitting at my desk between projects. And that just seems like one of the most important writing tips anybody can get <laughs> is not to wait to go sitting at your desk until you're, you have the next project. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about um, your writing habits and how you've cultivated them and how they're evolving? Yeah. Um, I, let's see. Well, so for the last three years... And I'm taking a pause right now, but for the last three years, I did this stories in the mail business called Wild Tailwort, um, where I, where I wrote, I retold a fairy tale every month, um, and sent it out to subscribers, like as a, you know, printed out story with a wax seal and envelope. So it went to their real mailbox, not mail, but true mailbox. Mm. Um, so I had one set of 13 fairy tales that was for 13 months. And then I did a novel in pieces for a year and then a, um, a young adult novel as well. So all these three different projects. And, and I really was on really tight deadlines with all of them. Were um, you finishing the pieces for each release or did you have a whole ahead of time? I was, I, I was writing them like kind of as I went, that was the only, you know, yeah. I just decided to do it. And then I kind of had to keep going. Right. Like I, that's what do so that's what dickens did right i mean exactly did yeah and it's really an intense process i will say like it was serious but it was amazing for getting me to write Mm -hmm. i just didn't have a choice it was like you can't i can't dilly dally i gotta sit down and do this because i have people waiting for this story now you know they would have subscribed already like in advance and they would know when it was coming um so i really just had to you know I got used to working on a deadline in that way. And it, it pushed amazing things out. Like I was, it was, I was, I was amazed how much I could get out 
with deadlines. So, I mean, I wrote every day I had to, you know, sit down every morning and I had kind of a timeline that that I did it on. Yeah. How did you get subscribers and how many did you have? Um, I, I kind of built, um, a network through, I started a blog and I connected with Rima, Mm -hmm. wonderful artist of Tattered Amalian. And, um, she helped me to spread the word because she already had a lot of people who loved her work. And so just sort of through, I mean, online avenues, really, Mm. I found myself like with social media suddenly wasn't expecting that, but I found that it was a really beautiful way to connect with people. Um, So I guess I had about 300 subscribers, like not for each project, but total, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at like all the different projects around that many, probably for all of them, maybe a little bit more. And there might be a hundred for each one as they were going Mm. all over the world. It was amazing. Australia, New Zealand. And what made you decide to do snail mail for the, rather than a blog or something like that? I mean, I, I'm a very old fashioned kind of soul. Young, young, old fashioned soul. Young, old fashioned soul. So I just, I love the idea of mail and a wax seal. And and for me also, I really enjoy reading physical books. Mm-hmm. I have a harder time reading, like actually really ingesting story on my screen. I just, yeah. it's hard for me I, to really take it in. I think there's only 6 billion other people who have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some scientific basis for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Being convinced that maybe that's not true, but really it's so much more satisfying to read this paper. And I just wanted to create that experience for people. Mm. This like slowing down, taking your story out into the garden, having a cup of tea, reading it that way. Um, And it was, it became kind of an art piece for me too. Mm. Like I created stamps and, you know, got to just create this nice little bundle. And I really enjoyed that side of it too. Mm. Like giving people that whole experience. So you did Tatter Demalion this way as well? No. This is the one thing that I wrote during that time that I didn't send out. It um I don't know, it just it actually came out before all of those projects. I wrote it before all of that and then it just has been waiting for the right time to be born and this apparently is the way. <laughs> and how did this way come about? And, and can you talk about the way too? So to our list, yeah, to our listeners, talk about the way. So, Million <laughs> is being published by Unbound, which is a publisher in the UK, who are doing. I think they're one of the only publishers doing this, but it's going very well for them that they have their writers, their authors, crowdfund the print cost of the book um, with pre-orders, basically. And then once you hit that. Uh, funding level, then the book is published like a totally normal publisher. They're yeah, it's connect with like Harper and Penguin, right? Yeah, like- they're distributed by Penguin. Yeah, yeah, so that's pretty awesome um, for them. And I think their their books are doing very well in the UK. Like this seems to be mm-hmm. working for them, and I think it's a beautiful model because it puts as they as they put it, it really puts the um, the fate of books in the hands of readers, so that you're creating a community around a book. Mm-hmm. And that's helping the book come into the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. And how did you connect with them? Um, so I, um, I connected with them basically. Well, I went to England in September um, to meet Rima. We never actually met each other in person before, so I finally decided I was just going to go to England and meet her. And you know, we had been kind of hoping that um, Tattered Amalian would be taken out by a publisher. And then I would go meet her. 
and I, I had a, I have a wonderful agent named Jessica Woolard who was, you know, sending the book out and we were trying to find a home for it and wasn't going so well as happens. Mm. (laughs) Ridiculously often now. I mean, we're just in a place where this, I mean, I think probably one reason Unbound is doing so well. And I know one of their books had, it was long listed for the man booker and so on is because um, there isn't the same mainstream place for really literary fiction. And so, so now I think it's easier to get reviewed with small presses and reward awards are going to small press books and so on. Yeah, but it's definitely, I think the landscape's changing a lot. Yeah. And so it's just challenging, especially for a book like Tattered Amalian that really crosses genres. So it was just confusing for people. Like, is it fantasy? Is it ecological literature? Is it just literary? But you know, what is it? Yeah. Um, so it didn't really fit in a box. And that's what Unbound is good for. So, so we, I went to England and um, Jessica and I went into the Unbound office and basically just had this amazing moment with them where they had loved the book. And it finally felt like I, I was sitting there and I really felt like I could feel the book saying like, yes, this, this is the place. This is what I wanted. You know, I wanted something like this that was a little bit more revolutionary in the way that, you know, they're doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Unbound basically when, when I was actually in England, um, you know, picked up the book. So it kind of felt like I didn't know that was going to happen, but it almost felt like I went to England for Tattered Amalian, but mm-hmm. I didn't know it, you know. But, but now you can write it off. I can <laughs> the trip. I mean, right now tracks. you can write the trip because the trip. you yeah. did business. Totally. Yeah, I knew that. Your, yeah. So your agent is in. Just a quiet moment. I'm going to say that I don't offer actual tax advice, and please <laughs> contact your lawyer for more information. <laughs> um. So you, your agent is in England as well. She's in London. Yeah. And do you have do you have other connections to London? How is how did it happen that your agent is in London? So um. That actually happened because of Tattered Amalian also. So um, in the beginning, when Rima and I were were starting to think about sending it out, um, she sent it to um, this wonderful writer, Jay Griffiths. Do you guys know her? Mm-mm. She's an English writer. Um, she wrote a book um, called Wild, which I think here is called An Elemental Journey, but there it's called Wild. Um, we have a different book called but- Wild here. <laughs> And this is my favorite wild, Jake. Like one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. It's really stunning um, nature writing. But um, yeah, she's just, a, she's an amazing writer. And Arima happened to know her. I was like, oh my God. Okay. And she sent it, she sent Tattered Amalian to Jay and I could hardly believe it. It's like to Jay Griffiths, one of my favorite writers, you know, and Jay loved it. And so she sent it to her agent, which is Jessica. Mm, perfect. And, um, that was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It felt very easeful and like it just happened in a way that was meant to be. Well, because you already loved Jay Griffith's work and then there was a the kind of um, symbiosis or whatever. But I yeah. 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 I, I think that's the way people find agents, though. I mean, I will mm-hmm. say when I teach classes about how to find an agent, I say, you know, contact people who love your work and, you know, get some because I think agents just don't go through the slush pile in the same way that they go through handheld, you know, handoff recommendations. From somebody that they respect, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. 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 They, yeah. Everybody's inundated right right now, I feel like, with yeah. the emails. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so it seems to me like this is kind of an odd question, but it seems like a lot of your process, both in creating your artwork and in the way you're sort of getting it out specifically uh, with your, you know, fa- re- re- rewritten fairy tales and in yeah. Tattered Chameleon, kind of is in alignment with some of the stuff that you are sort of talking about. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but there's kind of a, an organicness to your process. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess I was just kind of saying, like, do you like... What makes something of value for you to work on? Do you know what I mean? Like if someone was like, here, I'll pay you this amount of money to write an advertisement versus <laughs> now I'm going to, you know, create this thing. What are the values you bring to art that makes it worth it? Like if you were going to say like, this is my bottom line for a piece of art that you're creating. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> Love it. And I really, I just want to say also, I think I hadn't thought about this organicness to all of it like this sense of almost trying to um mimic natural cycles Mm -hmm. in all the work that I do I think that's kind of my whole goal in a way but I hadn't thought about it that way before yeah like that I hadn't put it together in that manner but yeah what makes it worth it to me I, I think um well I have a really hard time writing about things that I don't care about so I probably um, like a really hard time. Like I'd almost rather just do something else. It's not even writing, you know, like because right. I'm a writer doesn't mean that I would take anything to write as a, as work because mm-hmm. it comes from a really um, special place. It feels like for me so that it's hard for me to be in, if I'm not in alignment with what I'm doing, then I kind of just can't write it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, mostly, oh, let's see. I mean, I feel like most of the things that, kind of sing for me are in some way connected to our relationship with what I like to call the more than human world. So somehow broadening what it means to be human to, to take in again, you know, the fact that we're these creatures in this great system of interconnection. Um, So that's a big thread for me whenever I decide, you know, to work on something or when something just arises that I want to, decide I want to write. Yeah. You have two books for with Heyday, one forthcoming and one yeah. from a couple of years ago. Can, can you talk about those? Yeah. So those are a good example of um, sort of some nonfiction work that's been semi-commissioned. So um, for both of those books, The Wonderments of the East Bay, which came out a couple of years ago, and then this one I'm working on now, um, Heyday and Heyday's publisher, Malcolm Margolin, came to me saying, you know, I have this idea and do you want to work on it with me? So that he had the um, the overarching idea. And then um, I we can sort of talked about it together. And then I actually did the writing. Um, and both of those books are about the wonderments of the East Bay is about, well, what it sounds like is wonderful wonderments in nature in the East Bay parks and hills. So um, that was one of them. And this one right now is Lost Worlds of the Bay Area, which is sort of little histories of... Mm. Uh, things that we've sort of forgotten that have come and gone. Mm. Um, and for me, that's kind of about finding, finding the human angle um, to these stories of, of, you know, a lot of them are like in kind of industrial stories, like redwood logging in Oakland Hills, or, you know, the fact that there were once coal mines in Mount Diablo mm. and just sort of um, 
not necessarily things that I'm so happy about. Like, I'm not sure I like the idea of like total, you know, logging of the, all the <laughs> growth redwoods in Oakland. It's really sad, but just it, to me, it feels important to um, bring history to, to light in that way and to remind us that this is where we're standing. Yeah. Um, and these are the stories that shaped this place. So that, I think that's another big thread for me is, um, is the power of, of the layers of history in a place and all the different stories. So when I would work on my Gray Fox epistles, which were the um, fairy tales I sent out, they were, they were set here in the Bay Area um, and really focused on exploring the layers of story in a single place. So I might write about an area in Point Reyes and then be really, you know, careful to unveil like from dairy ranching history to native history to, you know, the story of the mountain lion that lives there, like all those different layers to me are important in making of a story. Mm. I think that's really wonderful because as you were talking about sort of these industrial histories of the Bay Area, we are such a young yes. place and, you know, the way, the way that it is right now. And yet we have so little connection to that history. And I think about, you know, the experience mm-hmm. of a lot of Americans going to Europe and I remember being struck in Rome. It's like, oh God, like here's the Colosseum. Here are some 17th century houses. Here are some contemporary condominiums. Here is a, like a fast gelato spot in a building that was made, you know, at the time of, you know, Galileo. Great. And, well, and they can't escape that history, that kind of, you know, presence. And, um, and yet, you know, that kind of work that you're doing is, you know, forcefully or not forcefully, but like trying to give people the opportunity to be reminded of our own sort of verticality. Like there's this process that we're just a small part of. And (laughs) it's actually been really amazing for me to work on it. Like I'm learning, I learn things every, with each new chapter. And it's, it's amazing how, um, kind of on the surface we are in our, in, in this country, I think, in terms Mm. of like thinking about the depth of time and history it's amazing. Yeah. It's like very surprising to me. Mm. Um, yeah. And California, especially though. I mean, when you look at like colleges like Harvard, they've been there for 300 years. And so there's that sense. That's at least the like, colonial sense. Whereas here, it's so bizarre to me. It's just, you know, so many Californians don't know that, you know, Mexico ever came up to San Francisco, right? They just happen to think that San Francisco's just called that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right? We so. were actually Mexico for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is great. I love how many how many things come out of these assignments that either are brought mm-hmm. to you or you create. Um, yeah. Now your mother is, I happen to know, also a wonderful <laughs> writer. Did you grow up? writing and how did how did you come to writing you know yeah I I have been writing since I can remember basically and I think I I also have been reading almost as long as I can remember so I think that there was some moment when I was maybe like seven or eight and I don't know what I was reading but I just you know I had read like the Hobbit and um the Redwall books which I loved by Brian Jakes these wonderful magical stories about woodland creatures living in an abbey, you know. Yeah, actually, and, Charlie's reading that now. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> or those, or, you know, um, a lot of fantastical literature, um, as a lot of kids like, but 
I, I had this moment when I was reading it where I, I thought, you know, I think the only thing better than reading this would be to create something like this. I can't imagine anything I would like to do more than that. And, you know, there was, I, I feel like maybe I was eight and I just started writing stories then and kind of have been ever since basically. I mean, and, um, I really felt supported by my family always in that way. Like, I feel like I talked to some people who, um, you know, wanted to be an artist or, you know, love to paint or whatever it might be, but their parents kind of had things to say about that. <laughs> that's nice, but that's really great. But aren't you going to pick something else too? And mm-hmm. nobody ever said that to me. Mm-hmm. It was just like, that's wonderful. Keep writing. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and I think that, um, so I always just believed I could do it. I just thought I'm, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. And I really never wanted to be anything else. Mm-hmm. What's the most wonderful or most helpful piece of writing advice about writing that you ever were given or, or, or learned Mm -hmm. found? Mm -hmm. Let's see. Oh God. That's like when people ask you what's your favorite book and then you can't think of anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a trick question. You can't say what's your favorite book because that's just too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think of, okay. So, or just what's been helpful. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I think um, I think actually one of the things that's been really helpful is, and I don't know where I, I got this from, I feel like you hear this from a lot of different angles, um, but really is that you can't wait for the muse to come. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, ha- you have to be there waiting. Oh, sorry, you have to, how would I put it? You need to sit down every day and show up. Yeah. And, and really in that practice, um, that's how your writing muscles evolve. And it's not so much about being struck by the muse, I don't think, Mm. as just um, being present to whatever it is that's going to come out and come up. And and so having that sort of disciplined practice has been really important for me. Yeah. Um, And I think it also is a little bit less anxiety-provoking than thinking like, where is my divine inspiration going to come from? And, you know, is it going to come instead just thinking this is, it's a craft that you work at like anybody else does with any craft, like, you know, woodworking or ceramics or whatever it might be. You have to practice it in that way and sit down and keep doing it. Um, and I think also, let's see, the other thing that came to my head was just getting out of your own way. Mm. And I don't know where that is coming from either, except that, (laughs) I'm not sure where I heard that, but Mm -hmm. I feel like when I'm most in the flow of writing, I'm kind of not there in a sense. Like I am just letting whatever wants to come through, come through and not, um, not stoppering it, not editing it, just not questioning it till later. Mm -hmm. So you are offering a writing advice paradox. (laughs) Am I? Yes. Don't wait (laughs) for divine inspiration. But get out of the way and let it come through. Or like maybe sit so down and I, get out of the way. I think I think <laughs> yeah, we have to come up with get out of the way. That's, yeah. that's my we, motto. We're gonna have to like come up with a cone or something. And it's like anyway. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's one of the things about writing though. Yeah. I mean it's yeah. And any art, I think, that there is and isn't divine inspiration, right? Like when you are in the flow of it, it feels like heaven, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, sit down and get out of the way. 
Do you have any rituals or um, rather, you know, whether it's sort of candle lighting type of rituals or I sit down at this time or I do this many words? What what are your writing yeah. rituals? <clears throat> well, so right now I'm actually having a little bit of a break, mm-hmm. um, which is. Um, so you're just getting I'm, out of the way. <laughs> just getting out of the way. Yeah, because I think with those with the um, stories in the mail projects, okay. I, I pushed it really hard and it was amazing but I realized that you know the well is not bottomless yes and you do need to give it some time to refill so I've so right now my practices are a little bit more loose Mm -hmm. but in the past like when I'm really in the midst of things um I the morning early morning is really my best time so I probably sit down at like 6 30 to 7 and I do light a candle actually (laughs) I'm a cup of black tea and that seems to be really important. Like I need the tea. Otherwise it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a way of awakening. <laughs> Making the taste of it. Somehow the whole thing like um, happens. And I, I always write. So all my first drafts are by hand with a particular pen actually, and a particular notebook. Like I need my pen or it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's this really nice fountain pen that has the right weight to it. And like mm-hmm. it's really smooth writing. Um, And in terms of, I probably go for about, I count by notebook pages, so I don't know how many words it is, but I think um, it's like either four hours of work. And I would obviously like stop for breakfast and stuff, not like 6.30 to whenever, but probably four hours or like 12 or so to 15 notebook pages. Wow. Yeah. Would be kind of the limit and I found that like after about 15 pages to 17 it starts to be crap (laughs) so like I could go longer but it's gonna be bad when does it start does it start being good right away or do you feel like there's is there also a warm-up like are the first three pages kind of clearing the way or it's it so depends Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of the time it feels like if I've left off in a good place then it's really easy to get in again. And I feel like I read maybe, I don't, this might be wrong, but it might've been Mark Twain who said, but maybe it was somebody else, that stopping he was mid-sentence. Yeah, Hemingway, Hemingway. I, mean, I don't know where I got Mark Twain. The manly Just writer. a long time ago, some dude. <laughs> oh, very masculine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody with facial yeah. hair said facial this. Hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving it mid-sentence so that you, you, you're leaving yourself something to finish the next day and get right in again. And that really works for me or leaving it in a place where I know exactly what I want to do next. And I'm excited where it's going to go next. And I feel good with it. Then I could just pick up right there and keep going. And if I haven't done that, then it's a little harder and I fiddle around for a while Mm. and like try to do other things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, while you're on this break, are you do, are you actively doing things to replenish the well? Yeah. Like yeah. what? Like what? So I am, I wasn't sure what I was doing at first. It was like, how, how do, does one replenish the well? Right. And, and I realized it has to be, you find out what it is when it feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, like the thing that feels really exciting is the thing that's going to be replenishing. So mm. I've been um, reading a lot and reading a lot of nonfiction that is interesting to me. So a lot of like, um, what, what's one of the things I'm reading a book about, um, ancient like eastern european dance folklore 
It's really amazing. You know, um, and it's kind of bringing an archaeology of like old Europe and this wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful folkloric stuff. Um, or what else? Um, like a lot of reading about natural history at the same time and then taking notes about it. So setting a time to do this and taking notes and um, <clears throat> lighting a candle, you know, to make it that feel like a special space. All of that has felt really good to me. And I, I feel like I'm following some thread that I don't, I don't know what it is yet. And there's probably a book in it, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm trying to replenish the well and really actually I'm researching for the next book. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the same thing, you know, I don't know, but, but um, I, I'm just following my nose basically right. with what each next thing feels good. But you're in the East Bay, right? Yeah. Oh. So you're not going to Tilden and tracking animals for fun? Oh, I am. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I just... I, that's another well rep- well replenisher, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I go to Point Reyes a lot, Yeah. actually. That's my favorite place to go. And I... Yeah, it's... I'm still working on um, allowing a day on the land to be a day of work. Mm-hmm. Like working through that the, the the mental blocks I think we have about what what is okay. Like if I haven't been sitting down at my desk for a set of hours, have I been working? Is it acceptable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I learned that Joyce Carol Oates goes running and tells herself all the stories in her head and then sits down and just types them out. And of course you couldn't be more prolific than Joyce Carol Oates. So no. if, if that helps. <laughs> that is, permission. yes. What, um, well, let's do this. Let's do okay. steal this. Okay. Go ahead. So um, I believe it was T.S. Eliot who said amateur poets. We say this every episode. Every episode. So for her to say, I believe it's T.S. Eliot is a little bit like, <laughs> I, uh, God, I hope so. Because we've been saying this now for <laughs> 20 episodes. Well, the truth is, a lot of people said it, and he stole it from somebody. But amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. And so um, we talk about what we've stumbled upon um, that we would like to make our own, our own work. So, Angie? Thanks for that pun. Well, I think that, you know, recently I've been kind of just beating the stuffing out of a screenplay. I've pulled it apart, I've put it together, um, and necessarily that means I have to watch a lot of movies to justify uh, writing my screenplay. Definitely, yes. And, um, you know, I think that I was really struggling with this idea of having your characters have concrete goals, and I think that I thought about concrete being quite literally like something you can pick up. Mm. But it's more like something you can just say, kind of a binary did it happen or did it not happen? Um, mm. So it doesn't have to be quite so concrete. So like, and who are you stealing this from? I am stealing this from this weird movie I just watched called Welcome to Me, which stars Kristen Wiig, and um, it's about a woman with borderline personality disorder who wins eighty-six million dollars, and um, oh. so it's just sort of looking at what I don't know how to explain it. I'm really glad that you just punted this to me because I, I was clearly great. prepared for you're this. You're doing great, though. I think um, this is yeah, really is interesting. <laughs> but I mean, also, the, I guess the other thing is part of the reason I was so interested in asking you and talking to you about kind of the alignment between your process and the things that you work on. I feel like I'm constantly 
in this place where I'm not clear anymore about what is important. What is the thing that drives me, that pushes me, that is the thing that I used to connect to and feel like um, is sort of some, some dead wood and I need to kind of prune back some yeah. of that stuff and, and kind of get back to the, the green wood that I is. Yeah. yeah. And so I, that's really what I'm trying. I guess I'm stealing pruning. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually starting to happen in it's our that time. I mean, that's our the neighbor. We're in Sebastopol, so people are out pruning right now. Yeah, yeah. you're in tune with what's going on out there. Yes, yeah. there you go. <laughs> pruning is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Sylvia, how about you? Um, well, so the first thing I was thinking of, but then I just thought of another thing right now. So I'm just going to say two quickly. Right. Perfect. One is this amazing book, and I can see it on my bookshelf right now called Martin Martin by Brian Doyle. And he wrote another book called Mink River a couple years ago, which did quite well, I think. Um, but Martin Martin is about, it's written for adults, but it's about the coming of age story of a 14 year old boy and a pine Martin, just like one of those little sweet weasel like creatures mm. that lives in the mountains. So the boy and the Pine Martin are both growing up on Mount Hood in Oregon. Mm. And it's just this incredible um, story from both of their perspectives and kind of trying to, it's sort of trying to do what, or it does really well what I feel like I'm always trying to do, which is to um, sort of broaden story to include the more than human creatures mm. so that it's not just about human beings, but it's also about the whole context in which we're living and, and also treating, you know, like animals and plants and stones and waters and all these things as actual characters, mm. not just a set, like a backdrop on stage, but actually really characters that you're interacting with. So half of that book is like about the Pine Martin's life and the elk and the, um, you know, wolverines and bobcats and gray foxes and all these other creatures there. And, and then how their lives intersect with the lives of the people living on the mountain. It's, I love it. It's one of those books where I just could hardly stand it when I was reading it. I was like, this is so good. I can't bear it. Like, I don't want to, I can't, I can't keep reading because I don't want it to go away. I love that. And I love actually even thinking about just the, the, um, oh my gosh, what did we just talk about with the trees? Pruning. Pruning. Thank you. I was like, pining. No, that's the Martin. Um, <laughs> pruning. Just, to, I always think that setting, really contains so much of the meaning and emotion of story. And now to think of the, that's of setting, having an arc too, even a tree yeah. having an arc, of course. Right. And so just to be aware of that, whether visually in film or just in terms of creating setting in prose, it's really exciting. Yeah. It's really exciting. And I think it, it kind of gets to this, the heart of this issue. I feel like it, um, just this sense that, you know, we're in a, we're at a point in the world of kind of like environmental disaster in a lot of ways. And I feel like it's partly due to the stories we tell about the world mm -hmm. and our relationship to things. And so if our stories don't change in terms of how we relate to other creatures, I, I don't think the world is going to change much mm -hmm. because we're story made creatures, you know, like we, we make a story about our life and live it and tell ourselves a story about our lives and live it. So that feels important to me. Yeah. And then my other one is um, a big one, but I've actually been listening to an audiobook, um, A Wizard of Earthsea. Uh -huh. So amazing. And I hadn't, you know, I, I read it when I was a kid and like hadn't revisited it again. And she is just incredible. Like her writing is so 
um, taught. Mm-hmm. Like it's so perfectly simple, but really poetic. And that's like kind of a, a goal for me in the future is just like one of something I want to work on is just um, simplifying, just seeing what it feels like to write in that style a little bit more. So I don't know. Yeah. She's a big one. Yeah. And that's Ursula K. Le Guin. And she and all these other references will be in the show notes Yes, <laughs> for anybody who's listening. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, for, yeah. Um, yeah. For me, this morning I sat down and I wrote, in columns, the three books that I think that I'm sort of stealing the structure of my book from, or, or even, I don't know if I'm even going that far, but I'm really inspired by them. And I started, and I was just going to list the 10 things I love most about each of them. And it turned out they were kind of the same across the books because they're mm-hmm. similar. And so, yeah. well, I don't know if anyone else would think so, but um, they they are The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz, uh, The History of Love by Nicole Krauss, and Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenity. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, and as I got to number 10, uh, number 10 was that they all, um, have a kind of a, a connection or like a win or whatever at the end and, and a, a deep like loss mm. or whatever fail, you know, like, so, so, so there's sort of something incredible that comes together and something devastating that comes apart. Mm. And, um, and in that moment when I was writing that, I suddenly realized the, the really devastating thing that had to happen to my character. And, and it was funny because, mm. um, he, you know, I have this character and he's there and he's there and he's there and he's written parts of him. He's this whole story. And then I kept thinking, wow, he's not in the end. Like he doesn't come back. And I have to, I have to write that part. I have to write the part of him at the end. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, no, there's a reason he doesn't come back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, it's not my, um, I, I sort of want everything to be happy. I mean, I think out of the chaos of my childhood, I did a lot of story making around optimism, optimism. And so sometimes it's hard for me to deal the blows, um, that you have to deal. Yeah. You know, it's sort of interesting and it's completely unrelated, but I'm just going to throw this out there. I was thinking about, you know, you were talking about reading when you were young and for me, like, cornerstone books were actually the Oz books. And what was interesting about the Oz books is that for them, everything could be a character all the time in Oz. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there was a a glass cat that was a character. There was a thing that they'd stuck a moose head and a sofa and something else together. And that became a living object. There were... They just everything, and it wasn't necessarily even man-made things. Like, you know, there were all these, I mean, there's this whole China city where, you know, everything was made out of China and those things were alive. And I think, you know, I had an intense anthropomorphism as a child, like weeping over having to leave one of my stuffed animals at home should it feel bad at being left behind. And it strikes me that there's kind of a, a theme in what you're doing and bringing out like the... His was sort of more industrial, I guess, but did have aspects of sort of natural world, whereas you're bringing that, uh, you know, kind of breaking down that isolation myth that we have about ourselves as being separate from yeah. from everything. Yeah, so. I think that's totally true. And I think I'm kind of still like that. <laughs> like, I totally think a lot of the things that I have are alive. I'm maybe not my stuffed animal. Like, I don't have any Maybe, but, but, but don't let them hear you say yeah. that. <laughs> Say that, but I do have clay ones now. So, yeah, 
<laughs> Sylvia, let um, let our listeners know how to find you and how to support Tatter Damalian becoming uh, a book. Yes. So, um, yes, Tatter Damalian is at unbound.co.uk. Um, and you can pre-order a book there. So we're running a crowdfunding campaign that started um, beginning of February. And uh, we are almost 50% there. Awesome. Yay. But definitely that second 50%, I think, is kind of the steep one. So mm. pre-ordering a book is the way to go. Um, and there's all sorts of cool, like there's just hardback level, but there's also like, um, you know, you can come join me in an animal tracking class. I love that one. book. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, a herbal salve made with roots and leaves and things sort of from the landscape of the story with a book. So there's all sorts of cool stuff there. Yeah. Um, and otherwise I just have you a can to- rough up your fingers reading a, a, a paper. Yeah. Book, you can- right. So you get a lot of dry skin turning those pages. It's a salve fast. Yeah. is just the thing. Just the thing. Yeah. yeah. Those fingertips. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So. That's at Unbound. And then I just have a website, my name, sylvialinstead.com. And we will put that in the show notes as well. And yes. and I hope you'll come back uh, when the book is out in the world and or your next one. I mean, I, I see many books in your future. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank such you. a pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs>